0: All right, well, I don't know if you guys are anything like me, um, but the end of every year, I usually take a few days, you know, it's the end of the year, and I usually take a few days just to think back over the previous year. So it's 2021 now, 2021, and uh, I've been thinking back a little bit about 2020, and it's been kind of a crazy year. I'm sure everyone would agree with that. Um, For me, I've definitely never experienced a year like 2020 was. And um, as I thought back over it, just kind of blew my mind thinking about some of the things that happened over 2020. So some, these are some of the big highlights from 2020. Some, most, most of them were bad things, honestly. But one of the big ones I remember from 2020 was this one. It was the murder of George Floyd. So back in 2020, one of the biggest events uh, was when a white police officer we saw all over the news literally knelt down on the neck of a black man named George Floyd for over, I think, seven minutes it was. And if you guys remember that, I'm sure you remember it pretty vividly like I do because it was, over, it was played on the news over and over and over. But I just remember how heartbreaking it was and just how um, like sad it was to think about that moment when we saw on the news replayed over and over and over the murder of this black man by a police officer and, and the injustice from that. And then once that happened, that caused all kinds of racial tension. There's always been racial tension in this country from, from its founding. We know that. But it caused the racial tension to really heat up and, like, come back in a a vicious way. And that that tension grew into first, like, protests. So we saw people going out and lots of good people peacefully protesting the murder that had happened and the injustice in our country. And we saw that happen. Um, But then some of those grew into riots. And we saw, like, craziness in the streets. We saw billions of dollars of property damage And just violence in the streets and even the loss of more life because of those protests that eventually some of them turned into riots. And then something we may not even remember, even though it was this this last year, is all the wildfires on the West Coast. So out in California, there was all these wildfires raging. And I remember some of the videos in the news and seeing the smoke-filled skies and seeing the fire all over California and some of the other places out in the West. And just recently... We've dealt with this big thing that we have every four years we call the election. So we have this election cycle that just, just is coming to a close now. And I don't know if you guys remember the feelings of that. We just had it. But the stress and the fear surrounding the election. So every time we turn on the news, we have some person on the news or even on regular TV shows now trying to convince us who we should vote for. Trying to convince us whether we should vote Republican or Democrat. And giving us this idea that that's going to change everything and that's going to make our lives perfect, and we had all this stress um, and fear surrounding the election when that still even goes on today. And then, of course, probably the biggest news of 2020 is the coronavirus, right? What's been come to be called COVID-19, and we've heard about that over and over and over in the news and all over our Facebook feeds and all over any social media feeds. Again and again and again, it's the coronavirus and it's people's strong opinions about what it means and how to protect ourselves from it. We've been completely inundated with it, with the numbers of new cases we hear every morning, the numbers of hospitalizations, how the hospitals have been overwhelmed and filled, and then also the number of deaths. We see it over and over and over. And for some of us, we probably start every single morning looking at the news feeds to see where we're at with coronavirus, what level our county is in, how bad it is in our state, how many deaths are out there, all of those different things. We've been completely inundated with the news of the coronavirus or COVID-19, and it's been basically inescapable for us. So those are just a few of the stories from 2020. Um, Lots of, like, negative stories out there we've seen. And all of these stories have one thing in common. We look back at 2020. And the, the biggest thing I see that they have in common is they all cause a reaction of fear in us. They all cause a reaction of fear. And what we're going to be talking about this morning, I believe, is one of the most important messages for followers of Jesus to hear from his word, especially after a year like 2020. We're going to be talking about something that has gripped Christians all over the world and in many ways has caused us to be reactionary, passive, and timid in our efforts to bring the kingdom of God to the lost all around us. The thing we're going to be talking about this morning is fear. 2020, in a lot of ways, we could say was a year of fear. When I look back at 2020, and if I I try and think of a theme or one word that represents 2020, at least for me, one of the biggest things that surfaces or comes to the top is the theme of fear. So we're going to take some time this morning to see what God's word teaches us about fear. Fear. And there's tons and tons of examples all through Scripture of fear. And we hear lots of verses like, do not be afraid or fear not. It's just littered throughout the Scripture. And we're just going to look at a few of those this morning. So the first one we're going to look at is in Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. And this is just a short story of when Jesus and his disciples got on a boat for a little bit. So it says this in verse 23. And when he, that's Jesus, and when he got into the boat, His disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm from the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And that just means the storm was so big that the waves were actually coming over top of the boat, and the the water was getting in the boat. The boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, that's Jesus, was asleep. So there's this big storm. Jesus and his disciples are on the boat. Jesus is probably below deck somewhere sleeping, and his disciples are above. In verse 25, it says this, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And I find this really fascinating, the way Jesus responds. So if we just look at the story again, Jesus and his disciples are out out at sea, and there's these giant waves crashing, about to, like, crash the boat. You know, the, the water's literally coming to the boat. His disciples are afraid, rightfully so. We'd all be afraid, too, if we were in that situation. And they go to Jesus, and they say, Lord, save us. We're we're perishing. We're going to die. And this is Jesus' response in verse 26. He says this, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him. So the first story here, we have Jesus and his disciples out on the boat. Jesus' disciples are rightfully afraid, it seems like. And they go to Jesus asking for help so they don't die. And his response is, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He actually rebukes his disciples, saying, why are you afraid? You know I'm here. You know I'll take care of you. The next we're going to look at is a parable from Matthew 25, verses 14 and onward. And this is the parable of the talents And in this parable, Jesus is trying to give an example of what the kingdom of God looks like. So he's telling a parable or a short story to help his followers understand what the kingdom of God is like. So he says this, For it, and it is the kingdom of God, so for the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, then he went away. So Jesus has these people that are listening to him, and he says this, I want to I tell you about the kingdom of God, I want to explain something to you. He says it's, it's like this, it's like a man, this person who's over some property, he's probably an important person, is going on a journey, and he's going to be gone for a while, so he needs to have some of his servants manage his things for him. So he calls three servants together, and he portions out different amounts of money to them, or talents, as the scripture says. To one he gave five, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one, then he went away on his journey. And in verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. He also, with the two talents, made two talents more. So the first two servants, they went out and invested the money somehow or did some trading, and they both doubled the amount that their master had given them. They both both doubled the amount of talents their master had given them. Then in verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So the first two, they doubled the money for their master. Then the third went and dug a hole, put the talent in the hole, and hid it. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So the master returned, and he called his servants together. and He said, I want you to tell me. I want you to let, to let me know what you did with what I entrusted you with and what you received back from that. Verse 20, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the first servant that doubled the talents, went from five to ten, came and showed his master. His master was excited. His master rewarded him for that. And then in verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, "Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more." So again, the second servant did the same thing. He went out and doubled what the master had given him. And then in verse 23, his master said to him, "Well done, good and faithful faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." Then in verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Listen to what he says in verse 25. He said, So I was afraid. I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be, I knew you to be a tough master, a strong master. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. So the the third servant was afraid of his master. And he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to live up to the expectations that his master had for him. And instead of going out and investing the money and making more or starting a business or something like that, he he hid it in the ground because he was afraid. And listen to to how his master responds in verse 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful, or wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So he looks at him, has some very strong words. He says, you wicked and slothful, or wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I was a a strong master, a strong man. You should have at least gone and opened a savings account. Put it in there, and then I would have got a little bit of interest when I returned. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, we have this story, and Jesus is comparing this story to the kingdom of God. He's like, hey, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Like God is going to give us talents, ways that he wants us to be used by him, and we need to go out and use those so he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to be like that third servant who went out and hid his talent in the ground because he was afraid. And then the next thing here, this is Ah, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy one, and uh, the Apostle Paul was one of the early leaders of the church, and Timothy was a young uh, elder or pastor, like church leader at the time, and he he's writing to Timothy and <clears throat> kind of encouraging him and helping him remember not to do some things and and what and what to focus on. So in verse five, Paul writes this to Timothy: I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. And your mother Eunice and now I am sure dwells in you. So he starts off Paul saying this, hey, I'm reminded of your faith and not not just your faith but also the faith of your mother and the faith of your grandmother. I'm reminded of this legacy of faith that is in your family. And he says that's why I'm writing this. When when I see that verse, I, I can't help but think of some of the families of this church this morning that have multiple generations of followers of Jesus represented in the kingdom of God. It's that kind of thing. I'm reminded of that. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother and then in your mother and is now in you. Verse 6, he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So he's saying, hey, remember the gift God is giving you. I want you to fan that into flame. So it's, it's the idea of like starting a fire. I don't know if you guys like starting fires when you're camping or anything like that. You're getting ready to roast some marshmallows, you start a fire. But you start off with a spark or maybe you start off with a flame, right? And first you, you have some sort of paper or cardboard or something like that and you light it. And then you have small pieces of wood like kindling. And you get those going and maybe you wave it with a piece of cardboard or you get down and blow on the fire, right? And you take that little flame, and you blow on it and you make it into a bigger and bigger flame, eventually into a fire. That's the idea of what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, I want you to fan into flame the gift that God has given you. And in verse 7, this is some very powerful words from Paul. He says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And I just want to take a couple minutes and talk about those different elements in that verse. So the first one there is God gave us a spirit not of fear. And we look back at the Greek word for fear there. It's, it's fear, but it's also the idea of cowardice or timidity. Some versions of the Bible actually say, like, timidity, or God did not give us a spirit, you a spirit that makes you afraid. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Hey, you have the spirit of God. Literally, you have the spirit of God living in you. And God did not give you that spirit. God did not put his spirit in you so that you would be afraid or that you would be timid. No, on the the other hand, he did the exact opposite of that. He gave you a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And then we look at the word power there. Now, that's not, of course, some like earthly power. It's not big muscles or being powerful like a CEO, anything like that. It's not this earthly power. That's not the idea. Again, it's the idea of this supernatural power that comes from the spirit of God living inside of us. It's a a power that the world can't even understand. And then the next one he says is love. And again, that's not an earthly love. That's not some kind of physical love. It's a supernatural love coming from the spirit of God living in us. It's the kind of love that causes followers of Jesus to go places that other people won't go. It's the kind of love that causes followers of Jesus to love the unlovable and to love in ways that other people won't love and to love in ways that don't make sense to the world around us. And then the third one he says, it's the spirit of self-control or self-discipline or even some versions say, the idea of a sound mind. And that's the idea that we're not going to be, as followers of Jesus, we're going to have a strong mind. And we're not going to be tossed back and forth by all the things we have not hear, either by different doctrines or by what we hear on TV or the news or Facebook or Twitter. Those things aren't going to sway us in our thinking because we have been given the mind of Christ. The Spirit of God helps us to think clearly and discern truth from lies so that we can be powerfully used by God. God did not give Timothy and He did not give us a spirit that makes us afraid, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. See, I think when I think when Paul was writing to Timothy, the reason he's saying this to him probably is because Timothy was going through some sort of fear. He was probably afraid of some different things, being a young leader in the church. And Paul recognized that if Timothy was afraid that if Timothy succumbed to fear that his ministry would be powerless and God would not be able to use him as effectively if he was living in fear. And Paul did not want that for Timothy. He wanted him to be powerful and effective in the ways that God was going to use him. And I I think this is true based on some of the scripture we've read this morning. When we live in fear, we are powerless. But when we live by faith, God will use us in powerful ways. When we live in fear, we are powerless. But when we live by faith, God will use us in powerful ways. And I want us to look at an Old Testament story that illustrates this truth for us. And it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's a story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Let me just give us a little bit of context really quick. So Elijah was a prophet of God. He was one of the ones who spoke for God in the Old Testament, called a prophet. And there was this evil king named Ahab who had become the king of God's people. And Ahab was an evil king, and instead of helping God's people worship God, he actually took them in a different direction and got them to worship all kinds of idols, like Baal and different ones like that. So in this this story of scripture we're going to look at in 1 Kings, what's happening is Elijah has come to confront Ahab. He's come to confront him. And this is how some of the the story goes. 1 Kings 18, and we'll start in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, so Elijah came to confront Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, It is you, you troubler of Israel. So immediately when the king, the evil king, saw Elijah, he said, It is you, you're the one that's causing all of this trouble and all of these problems for Israel. And Elijah answered him, I have not troubled Israel, so he turned it back around on him. I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The Baals were some idols, they were false gods. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So when Elijah comes to confront Ahab, Ahab blames everything on him. He's like, hey, you're causing all the problems in Israel. And Elijah turns around and says, no, you're the one that has caused God's people to turn away from God and to follow idols. And he says, you know what, let's just, let's just have a face off and let's just get to the bottom of this right now and see who the true God is. And he challenges him and his God. And he, says, he said, now therefore send and gather all Israel. So get all of Israel, all of God's people, have them come to this Mount Carmel and bring all the prophets of Baal, those are false prophets, and all the prophets of Asherah, and have them come, and we will face off on Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So he went and got all the people of Israel and brought the false prophets, and they all came to Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, So Elijah, you could just imagine the situation. <clears throat> There's a whole kingdom of people there gathered at this mountain, and all these false, false prophets and Elijah. And he gathers all the people. He says, Everyone come in close. And He says this to them. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you ride the middle? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah gathers the people together and he's trying to get them to make a, make a, make a choice. He's like, pick right now. How long are you going to Act like it's both. Pick right now. If God's a true God, follow him. If it's Baal, then go follow him. And the people were afraid because they did not answer. They didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So Elijah's saying, hey, look, I'm the only prophet of God here right now. It's just me. I'm all alone, me and my God. But Baal has 450 prophets right there. Verse 23, let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put, but put no fire to it. So he says, all right, we're going to get two bowls. Each of us, the prophets of Baal are going to have a bowl and I'm going to have a bowl. And I want them to take it and cut it or butcher it basically and get the altar ready, put it on the altar, but don't light it. Don't put any fire on the altar. And he says, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you, that's prophets of Baal, call upon the name of your God. And I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So this is, this is what Elijah's setting up. He's saying, look, both of us have an altar. Both of us have a bull. We'll get it ready. We'll get the sacrifices ready. You call out to your God. If he answers by fire and lights it on fire, then he's the true God. But I will do the same thing, and I'll call on the true God, the God of Israel. And if he answers, then we know he is the true God. Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So all the people agreed it was a good idea to do this. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. So from morning until noon, the the prophets got got everything ready, got the sacrifice ready, and they called out for Baal and yelled for him, crying out for him from morning until noon, but there was no response, no response from their God. And this this part is awesome in verse 27. And at noon, so about lunchtime, Elijah came out and he began mocking them. It's not something you normally think of a man of God doing, mocking someone or making fun of them, especially mocking a whole group of prophets in front of an entire nation. But that's what he did. He said, cry aloud. So he's saying, maybe you should yell louder, for he is a God. Either he, either he is musing, that's maybe, he's, maybe he's meditating, maybe he's thinking deeply, or he is relieving himself. Maybe, literally, Elijah's saying, maybe your God is on the toilet. Maybe he's on the toilet and, he, and he, he ran out of toilet paper and he's waiting for someone to bring him toilet paper so he can finish. Maybe he's stuck on the toilet. This is literally what Elijah's saying. Or maybe he's on a journey, maybe he's gone somewhere far off. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be woken. So Elijah's saying, yell louder. Maybe you'll wake him up, maybe you'll get him out of the bathroom. Maybe you'll wake him up from his meditative state. And they cried aloud. That means they, they cried louder and they yelled louder. And they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That's evening time. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So first, it was the prophets of Baal's turn. They got the sacrifice ready, and they began calling on their God, and there was no response all the way up until lunchtime. Then Elijah comes out, but this man of God literally starts making fun of them and making fun of their God. So they get even more aggressive, and they begin yelling louder, and they even come to the point where they're cutting themselves, trying to get a response from their God. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then in verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So again, he gathered them all together. And all the people came near him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So he took 12 stones because of the 12 tribes of Israel is what that saying. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench, so it seems like he got a shovel or something like that, and he dug a trench around the altar, as great as could contain two seahs of seed. Those are just measurements of seed. So Elijah rebuilds the altar, and he doesn't stop there. Then he digs a trench around the altar, like a little ditch. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four jars with water. And that word jars, it, when I hear the word jars, at least for me, I think of like a little mason jar. That's, that's not what it was at all. Some, some other versions, like the King James, use the word barrel there. And most, uh, like, biblical scholars think that they were these big, like, clay vessels that probably held about 30 gallons of water, which would have weighed about 250 pounds. So That's what we're talking about. So he says, filled four jars or four barrels of water. And pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And they did that. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled also the trench with water. So now it's Elijah in his God's turn. And you can see Elijah. It's just just him and God versus all of these hundreds of prophets of Baal and verse the king. And he, he, make, he, he makes the odds even more against God. And he says, I want you to fill these giant barrels of water and just drench this altar and this sacrifice and this wood with water to the point that it would have just been sopping wet and there was water all around it. And at that time, at the time of the offering of the oblation, again, that's evening, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord, so he's praying here. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And I love, I love seeing the difference between how Elijah interacts with his God and how the prophets of Baal interacted with their God. So we have the prophets of Baal on one hand that are running around acting like crazy people, yelling and screaming and cutting themselves, trying to get an answer from their their God. And Elijah simply gathers the people of God around him and he offers a prayer saying, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you're the true God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook, Kishon, And slaughtered them there. So when Elijah prayed to the one true God, God answered and sent a fire from heaven that was so hot and so powerful that it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when the people that were gathered there saw this, they returned to God and they said, He is the true God. The Lord is the true God. And then Elijah sees the prophets of Baal and he didn't let one of them escape. And man, I I love this story. I love seeing this bold man of God who seems fearless in these moments. And he did that because the spirit of God that was welling up within him and Elijah was not passive. Actually, the opposite of that is true. He was, he was full of strength, and he was aggressive. And in these moments, he was very decisive. And you know what? Sometimes when I, when I read a story like this, it kind of messes with my view of what a Christian, a, a Christian leader is. Because many times in this world, I feel like a lot of Christian leaders feel like they need to be passive, passive. And they walk around in fear. But we don't see that with Elijah. He was aggressive. And he was full of strength. And again, I believe this is true. When we live in fear, we are powerless. But when we live by faith, God will use us in powerful ways. And we see that in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And let me just say this just quickly, just so it's clear. I'm not, I'm not trying to say, especially after a year like 2020, that we shouldn't be wise. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that at all. And I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't take precautions. But I, I do believe the scripture is clearly telling us that we should not live in fear, not have a spirit of fear. And, you know, maybe, maybe some of us that are here this morning or even some of us that are watching online this morning, maybe when we, we hear some of this scripture and we see what the Bible says about fear and we hear this story of Elijah and see his strength from God, maybe some of us this morning, like, are being convicted by the Holy Spirit that maybe we need to repent of the fear we've been living in. Maybe we've allowed the spirit of fear to control us. And we haven't done some of the things that God has wanted us to do. And we haven't lived by faith. And maybe we need to do that this morning. You know, and, and all of us, I believe, have legitimate re- reasons to be afraid. We have legitimate reasons for it. Maybe when we look back at our life, there's mistakes that we've made. I've made lots of mistakes. And maybe become, because of some of those mistakes, it causes us to live in fear. Maybe there's failures from our past. We think back of the ways we failed. And we're like, God can't use me. I'm a failure. I've done this. Maybe that's what's holding us back. Maybe ways that we've been hurt by other people. Maybe the ways that other people have sinned against us cause us to fear and cause us not to trust God. We all have legitimate reasons to be afraid. But maybe we should take those things and place him in God's hands. And it says in the Bible, lay those at the feet of Jesus. So he can help us to no longer live in fear. And to give some of that control over to Jesus. And when I, when I think of this, this story of Elijah, it's amazing to see this man of God just full of faith. And he, he seems perfect. And he seems like he can never fail. And it seems like he can never make a mistake but there's something else that's included in this story that I believe like the Holy Spirit sovereignly left in the scriptures just to help us and encourage this, encourage us. And it's in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's just the next chapter over from the story we have just read. So we have Elijah, this man full of faith, who's fearless, who faces off with an evil king, and all of these hundreds of prophets of Baals. He faces off and God brings the victory. And this is what happens the next chapter over. Ahab, that evil king we talked about, told Jezebel, that's his wife, who was very evil. So Ahab went and told his wife, Jezebel, all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not, take, if I do not make your life as the life of one of those by this time tomorrow. So the king's wife, the evil Jezebel, She sends a message to Elijah, and she basically says, look, if I don't kill you by tomorrow, I want to be like one of those prophets of Baal who was slaughtered. I'm coming for you. I'm coming to kill you. And the brave, perfect man of God, Elijah, responds this way in verse 3. It says, then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life. Then he was afraid And he rose and he ran for his life. So even the amazing prophet of God, Elijah, who faced off with the king and all the prophets, succumbed to fear. We all do. We all have things that we're afraid of and we all succumb to fear sometimes. But maybe we need to release control of some of those fears to God, place it in his hands and lay our burdens at his feet. And then we can be used by God. And guys, when I, when I think about being used by God and I think about all the things that Paul said to Timothy and then the story of Elijah and how he's used by God, I'm sure you would agree, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning and you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you, I'm sure you would agree that you want to be used by God, just like I do, in powerful ways. I think we all want that. I think we all want to be used by God. And let me ask you this. What would happen if we would release our fear to God and repent of that and live by faith? What could God do? What could God do through us if we stop living in fear and live by faith? How could God change us? How could God change us as a group, and how could God change you personally? How could God change the people around us? How could God change this church? How could God change Gospel Memorial Church if we would live by faith? How could God change this community? This hurting, needy community all around us. How could God change this community if we would live by faith? And how could God change your family? How could God use you to change your family? I encourage you to just think about some of those questions as we close our time this morning. So we're going to close in a time of worship. And as the uh, band members come forward, and as we have just a song here to close our time, I would just encourage you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you this morning. Maybe it's to convict you. Maybe it's to encourage you. Just let the Holy Spirit speak and listen to him.